tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. Who's the casino? Big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Barrage. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? On a camel. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. <laughs> It has been a long time since we've done a vintage segment. Absolutely. Too long. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not so much that, you know, you were away for a while, which, I mean, that obviously is a contributing factor. I, I really, considering this is kind of the birth of our entire show, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's really important to me that you're my co-host when we do these things. But more than that, I've, you know, shared before that I did have a little bit of writer's block. I realized that these were incredibly popular, which I think might have intimidated me a little bit. And once I recalibrated my, my thought process on it, I just started to focus on making them good. And I think we got a fantastic one for you tonight. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting storyline on, on somebody who's, who's played a very interesting part in Vegas. Absolutely. So tonight we're going to talk about E. Perry Thomas. Las Vegas developed into the number one tourist destination in the world wasn't a casino owner, a performer, a dealer, or an architect. He didn't create the neon signs, develop any casino standard practices, or build any of its properties. However, without E. Perry Thomas, virtually none of the aforementioned would exist. An argument can be made that no single individual has done more to direct the growth and development of Las Vegas in the last half century than E. Perry Thomas. As a side note, The dates included in this episode are best estimates determined by researching the stories with the property's history as Perry intentionally didn't like to disclose specifics when talking about history. Edward Perry Thomas was born in Ogden, Utah on June 29th of 1921. His name is comprised of the middle names of his parents, his father's Edward and his mother's Perry. He grew up a Mormon, although stopped attending the church at age 14. However, his wife and children would still actively participate in the church. Perry's father was a plumbing contractor. He was so successful that he was able to purchase the bank he did business with when it failed during the Great Depression. Perry's first job was working for his father at the bank, collecting loan payments. While in college, World War II broke out. Yeah, Perry had been part of the ROTC program since junior high. ROTC is the Reserve Officers Training Corps, and in December of 1941, they were all called to Army basic training. Perry wanted to join the Air Corps, but had problems with his eardrums bursting every time he flew above five or 6,000 feet. As a result, Perry was hard of hearing for the rest of his life. So they washed him out of the program, and he returned to the Army, where he eventually rose to the rank of Sergeant. During the war, he was assigned to intelligence work while in France. However, Perry will be the first one to clarify that it sounds more important than it was. He did little more than bookkeep and various other clerical duties. While in the Army, in his spare time, Perry would engage in what would be the extent of his gambling experience, playing bridge for 25 to 50 cents a game. 
But by far, Perry will be the first to tell you the most valuable experience the Army taught him was how to relate with all different kinds of people, something he considers some of the most important education of his life. Late in the war, Perry's outfit was scheduled to relocate to Japan. The night before they were scheduled to be shipped out, they were informed that the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and their orders were canceled. When he returned from the war, he still had two and a half years left of college to complete. He asked his fraternity brothers to find him a date for the planned homecoming celebration. Two years later, he married his date, Peggy, and they are together to this day, 65 years plus married. They were married back on September 12th of 1947. Perry was majoring in business in college, but wanted a degree in banking, which didn't exist at his school. So Perry proposed they create it. After some convincing, the University of Utah created the School of Banking. Perry's idea won him the Outstanding Finance Student Award from the Wall Street Journal. Always modest, Perry would tell you that he just came up with the idea, but the university really made it happen. When Perry graduated college, it was assumed he would go to work at his father's bank. But Perry wanted to be his own man, so instead, he chose to work for Continental Bank, which was the small bank in Salt Lake at the time. Perry believed it was a place rich with opportunity. However, after a couple of years, Perry realized he didn't have any future in Salt Lake, and by 1952, Perry and Peggy had two kids. Perry started visiting Vegas looking for some potential real estate opportunities. In the early phases of development, he saw Las Vegas as a town with tremendous potential for growth. When Perry was called upon to go to Las Vegas and determine if the company's struggling branch should be closed, he jumped at the opportunity. The idea of being able to help develop a community interested Perry very much. In 1954, Perry's opportunity to move to Vegas came when the man running the bank of Las Vegas was diagnosed with cancer. At this time, the Strip was starting to boom. In 1955, the Strip had the El Rancho, Last Frontier, Thunderbird, the Desert Inn, the Sands, Flamingo, and the Bingo Club was just starting to convert into the Sahara. Not exactly thrilled to be moving to the desert, Perry promised his wife they would only be in Vegas for two years. Almost 60 years later, they still live there. <laughs> When Perry took over the Bank of Las Vegas in 1954, banks didn't loan money to casinos. Everything a casino did was considered immoral, and banks didn't want to be seen as affiliated with them. Perry realized an opportunity to supply a need, and his bank became the first to do so. Perry felt that gambling was a legal industry in Nevada and thought any good bank should service all legal businesses. It didn't matter if gambling was illegal in other states, it was legal in Nevada, and that's where they were. He also understood that the business of gambling was no different than insurance or even commercial or investment banking. Everything is based on probabilities. It's the exchange of money for a percentage of profit. The biggest difference between gaming and banking is that banks invest for percentage on a per annum basis. In gaming, the exchange for percentage of profit is done second by second or minute by minute. Since the Bank of Las Vegas only had a $75,000 loan limit, Perry spent most of his time finding investors, usually insurance companies, to finance these loans. Perry's thinking was so far ahead of the curb that his bank was the only one to lend casinos money until 1970. By that time, Perry pretty much controlled the market. The chairman of the Bank of Las Vegas was Nate Mack when Perry came to town. Nate Mack was a very successful businessman in Vegas, starting in junk dealing and later in real estate. He owned minority stakes in the Flamingo, the El Dorado, and the Jackpot Casinos. He admired Perry's foresight to start loaning money to casinos and approached him one day stating that he wanted Perry and his son Jerry to be partners. Perry liked the idea, but knew he didn't have the money to be an equal partner. Nate told Perry these things have a way of working themselves out. Two weeks later, Nate informed Perry and Jerry that they just bought 80 acres on San Francisco Avenue 
now Sahara Avenue. The rest was up to them. They developed that land into a shopping center. Three years later, they sold those shops for over a million dollars. Jerry and Perry worked well together, regardless of the fact that they were virtual opposites. Perry's a Republican, Jerry's a Democrat. Perry's a Mormon, Jerry was Jewish. Perry's very sociable and Jerry did not like crowds, but the two never questioned what the other did. They had complete confidence in what the other was doing. They were perfect 50-50 partners. Years later, Perry's children would go on to say that their father was closer to Jerry than his own brothers and sisters. Their partnership lasted the rest of their lives until Jerry died in 1998. Together, they would go on to change the city forever. Perry was very aware of the mobster past the majority of the men he was dealing with in Vegas had. But he thought what they did in the past had little to do with what they were doing in Vegas. With that being said, he and Jerry knew that to work with these men would often mean they needed to operate on the edge of the line. But they always knew exactly where the line was and never crossed it. In retrospect, Perry would say that some of the best people to loan money to were mobsters because it was a matter of pride with them to pay back their debts. He said, quote, the mob might go down the street to rob a bank to pay you, but they would pay you. Perry claims the bank never lost money on any of the gaming loans they made to them because when the mobsters came to Vegas to ply their trade legally, the thing they wanted most was respect and legitimacy, and Perry gave them both. In truth, it was relatively easy to approve loans for casinos because the majority of them were established, proven money makers. They'd already shown that they know how to run their business as well and profitably. But Perry didn't like startup businesses and never loaned money to independent bars or restaurants. He also didn't give loans to celebrities. Perry said in general, they were a credit risk. In fact, Perry only broke his rule twice for Shecky Green and Sammy Davis Jr., but only after the Sands guaranteed repayment of the loans. Shecky paid back his loans, the Sands paid back Sammy's. <laughs> Perry's belief that confidentiality between banker and client was just as sacred as lawyer to client is one of the major reasons former gangsters were so loyal to Perry even after other banks started offering loans to casinos. Employees at the bank were told they were not to discuss business with anyone, not wives or girlfriends, no one. Perry believed in this so much that he trained himself to remember important details of a meeting so he wouldn't have to take notes. This was important because everything that was documented could be subpoenaed by a court. One of the reasons many people don't know what Perry did for Las Vegas is because he made it a point to steer clear of reporters and writers. In fact, it took a lot of convincing by his family to document his story for the book Quiet Kingmaker. Despite the idea that most of Perry's clients were already dead and therefore the confidentiality didn't apply anymore, Perry argued they still had family members that could be affected. But Perry understood the value of documenting how Las Vegas grew into the city it is today, especially after Jerry died. Eventually, it boiled down to keeping things general and the right to decline to talk about certain things. Prior to the Bank of Las Vegas, funding for casinos came from a myriad of places. El Rancho got a large amount of their funding from a government loan for housing development. The Thunderbird and Flamingo were financed by Meyer Lansky and the New York mob. Desert Inn partnered with Mo Dalitz, who had ties to Cleveland's mob, and the New York mob built the Sands. In fact, virtually every property at one time or another had mob money in it. One of the first notable marks Perry made on Las Vegas was involving a loan he made to Tony Cornero for $120,000 while he was building the Stardust in 1955. Tony was already in trouble at that time. To raise money so he could buy the Royal Nevada and use the land to build the Stardust, he printed up some stock and began selling it. 
The problem was, Tony was selling paper to people, not stock. He never filed with the SEC. The Stardust constantly went over budget during its construction, and Tony turned to gambling to shoot off some steam. It bothered a lot of people to see Tony shooting craps because it was widely speculated that he was probably playing with investors' money. One night, when playing craps at the Desert Inn, he had a heart attack and died at the table. Vegas lore speculates that Tony's drink was poisoned by the boys due to outstanding debt and frivolous spending, but since an autopsy was never done, we'll never know. This event put the bank loan in danger of going into default. At first, Perry wasn't too concerned because even though the property wasn't close to being done, they had plenty of assets they could repossess. But the loan was written by a new officer at the bank, and Perry noticed that the title to the property had no trustees or liens on it. This meant the bank was in danger of not getting anything for this loan, so Perry came up with an idea. Lou Strollo, a relative of Tony's, took over the Stardust project. He met with Lou and said the bank would agree to another $120,000 loan under the conditions that Perry be the trustee. This was important because if the company went into bankruptcy and there isn't enough assets to satisfy all debts, then secured creditors get paid first. Everyone else splits what's left. When the project eventually did fall into bankruptcy, Perry was the only secured creditor. Now that left an unfinished property on the Vegas Strip that would be auctioned off to satisfy debt obligations. Perry estimated that it would cost $6 million to complete the start of this We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Yeah.